Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I've been gone the last couple of weeks, and uh, yeah, great to be back. We just finished a series on forgiveness. It was good, wasn't it? And very relevant, and I think it was. And uh, Pastor uh, Nick just discerned that word to speak on that topic and, and uh, did an excellent job on those last two messages, and I think we all benefit from that. I was in Central America last week with partner churches, and in Costa Rica, they asked me to speak at their Friday evening service on, guess what? Forgiveness, based on the needs in their church. And uh, Dale Schuler, our missions co-leader, went with me. We had an excellent trip, and as time goes on, I'm anxious to tell you a lot of the stories there about how God is working in some really, truly amazing ways. We're planning to take a short trip, a short-term mission trip to Central America next year, and Dale and I will host an interest meeting for that after the service today. Potential areas of engagement include campus evangelism, construction outreach with children, medical outreach, and ministry to sex workers. So please join us today if you have any interest in being a part of that. So this week, we're going to turn our thoughts toward a new series called Behold, It is Very Good. And after God created the material world and the first human beings, those were his words. And these words of affirmation and delight, they strike like lightning on our 21st century questions. And you might wonder, how do our bodies, how do these physical bodies have so much relevance? I like how one author put it. He said, our bodies are messy. They need constant feeding, exercise, and sleep. They smell. They break down in age. And it's easy to see why some have come to view our bodies as nothing more than containers for the soul, uh, the part that really matters, and merely vehicles of self-expression. And doesn't the Bible itself take this view? Well, skimming the, ver- the surface, we might think so. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 reads, Train yourself for godliness. And while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's easy to come away from a verse like that and say, yeah, the body does not mean that much in light of eternity. And our culture is bent all sideways on the body, bouncing to extremes. They either idolize it or they despise it. But really, we in the church aren't much better. We don't know how to think about the body. And this is a problem. Why? Because the way that we think about our body touches on so many issues. The same author, Daryl Dash, gives a list of the kinds of issues that are impacted by the way that we think about the body. For example, what does it mean to be human? Are there only two genders? 
What does it mean to be male or female? When does human life begin? What if someone doesn't feel like their biological gender? What is sex and who can we sleep with? How should we treat issues of nutrition and fitness and aging? Is assisted suicide a valid option? What happens to us at death? And what's our future? Now, you may not have thought about it, but all of those issues are related to the way that you think and what informs you about the body. So, over the next five weeks, we're not going to hit on all, but we're going to hit on many of those issues. Two helpful resources to me <coughs> have been Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, a book that our leaders have been studying, and a series of sermons on the body by Sam Alberry. But before we go any further, I'm going to get a drink of water. You stand. <laughs> We're going to read Romans 8 together. <clears throat> Turn to page 944. Oh, thanks, Nick. I picked up a little bit of a cold <clears throat> coming back from our trip. So I'm going to need this and more. Okay. Beginning <clears throat> in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Let's pray together before commenting on that. Father, in Christ's name today, we ask you to help illumine us and educate us and inspire us and help us to understand what your scriptures, what you teach, Father, about the body and how it pertains and gives relevance to all of these questions that we struggle with and grapple with as a culture today. So Father, give us every good gift today that you desire and long to give to us. And Father, in Christ's name, as Nick shared earlier, we pray for Israel this morning. And we pray for peace in that region. And we pray, Father, protect and defend uh, the lives of non-combatants on both sides, innocent non-combatants on both sides, Father. Protect their lives and cause men and women and children from both sides, Father, to look to you 
and to find Jesus Christ in the midst of this terrible, terrible conflict. And we pray, Father, for every leader involved, both there and around the world, that you would give them wisdom. We ask you, Father, specifically, this would not escalate into something deeper and greater. And we pray for a peaceful, just resolution as soon as possible. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Going back to... <coughs> Going back to that passage in Romans 8, in this picture, Paul encapsulates salvation history, saying that right now, creation, the physical world, it groans under the human, the ache of human sin and brokenness. And this physical world, the human in our body, there is a experienced glory from which we have fallen. And the brokenness of our creation and our with our Creator. But this passage also says there is hope, both for our bodies and the material world. God is working his plan of salvation, his salvation history. And that includes the material world and our bodies. The glory to be revealed in the future, the glory of our future being and bodies will place our suffering today in the rearview mirror. If you want to Follow along with an outline. Here's the outline for today. We're going to cover five different things today. Number one, your body has been made with meticulous care. Number two, your body has a design and purpose. Number three, your body is you. Number four, your relationship with your body is, mm, well, complicated. And number five, your body is not yet finished, okay? That's what we'll cover. Let's hit this first point. Your body has been made with meticulous care. Look at Psalm 139, verse 13. King David wrote this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. When David reflected on the mystery of his origin and existence and the capacities of his mind and body, he could only lift his eyes heavenward in worship. Many times throughout the years here, we have described the glory of the human body. Uh, for example, the brain's speed and power to process data, uh, the eye's capacity to grasp perspective and distinguish things, uh, the minute intricacy of your circulatory system, or the vast amounts of information stored in your DNA. Now, David, did not have access to any of that. But by simple observation, he came to the same conclusion 
The body is made, your body is made with meticulous care. To knit is to carefully weave together. I'm not an expert on knitting, but I have seen it done. To knit is to carefully weave together various strands of thread with different colors into a single tapestry, right? All you knitters, will you please affirm that? Yes. Well, God, in the same way, designed the mind and body, its seven organs and 11 systems, depending on how you count, to operate as a cohesive, complementary whole. David said in another place, your hands have made and fashioned me. Notice how David personalizes this. You have fashioned me. You created my inmost being. He does not leave his theology in the place of the theoretical. He believes God oversaw his creation. He is exclaiming, my creation is not accidental. There is a uniqueness to who I am, both mind and body, that reflects God's goodness. And my friends, guess what the good news is this morning? It's also true for you. You're not an accident. Your unique mind and body is designed by the sovereign God and reflects his goodness. So the implication is this morning is receive your body as a great gift. Don't devalue your body, even if it is the one you would not have chosen for yourself. Now you might be saying, Chris, have you looked at me? Have you looked at me? You think I want this misshapen body too tall, too short, too round, too thin? I mean, look at my nose. You think I want this nose? Or more seriously, many of us have this or that infirmity that limits our mind, that limits our body. Physical breakdown, physical illness, mental illness, mental breakdown. Now, just hold on for a moment. We'll talk a little bit more about that point here in a little bit. Let's go to our second point. Your body has a design and purpose. Okay, that's water one. Forget that. Water two. Okay. Now again, your body has a design and purpose. We got to go back to the very beginning. The creation story. You can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter one, page one. The Genesis story gives us the big picture account, the first chapter. And remember, God is creating his world by fiat. He is speaking it into existence by the power of his word. The creation account has a repeating rhythm. Let there be. Let there be light. Let the land produce vegetation. Let the water teem with living creatures. But in verse 26, notice the difference in the opening as if something new is about to splash onto the scene. The text this time says, rather than let there be, it says, let us make human beings in our own image, in our own likeness. 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Mankind here is a general word, male and female, he created them. First, there is something, notice, intensely personal about this language. Let us make, conveying an imagery of working with one's hands. God making the first human being. And secondly, the striking new language reveals a plurality of being within the person of God, us. It's plural. While what we know about the Trinity, God is Father, God is Son, God the Spirit, though that's not yet fully revealed, here we have our first indication that the creation of man is unity in diversity. What do I mean by unity in diversity? Just as the being of God is three persons in one, so human beings will reflect the beauty, the beauty of unity or oneness within diversity. And we see that unity in diversity as God created both man and woman in his image. Both are designed to reflect his image in unique and complementary ways. Both are needed. The man cannot fully reflect God on his own, nor can the woman. Both are needed to see the fullness of who God is. Let me quote Tim Keller here. It's a lengthy quote, but it's very helpful. Here's what Tim Keller writes about this. In Genesis chapter 1, you see pairs of complementary things made to work together. Heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. It is part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more life and beauty through their relationships. As N.T. Wright points out, the creation of uniting male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of all this. This means, that, this means that male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things the other cannot. And physical sex was created by God to be a way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. You see, because God created male and female with meticulous care and detail, so your body's very biology reflects a God-given design. Now, let's stop for a moment and think about what we are saying about the human body relative to the dominant narrative of our culture. It's 
clear that this Christian view of reality is 180 degrees different than the evolutionary view of life, right? What we are saying about creation is on the opposite pole of a materialistic evolutionary view of the nature of human beings. Purpose, evolution, the essence of evolution says that we are here by chance through random selection. Purpose and design are on the opposite side of chance. One historian said this, the, the denial of purpose is Darwin's distinctive contention. And Richard Dawkins wrote, natural selection, the blind unconscious automatic process which Darwin discovered has no purpose in mind. See, centuries ago, centuries ago, most human beings saw the world differently than the dominant narratives of, our, of, our, of today. Centuries ago, most people believed that nature, including our bodies, was the handiwork of God, and therefore our bodies possessed a weighty significance. And morality was bound up in that belief since we had an obligation to treat one another as image bearers. But if we are here by chance, our bodies are totally subject to whatever purpose humans give to it. Whatever the self wants to impose on its body, it can do so without restraints. Without God, the body has no intrinsic purpose. Now, ironically, evolutionary materialism, in the end, devalues the body. Here is how Nancy Piercy said it. The body is reduced to a clump of matter, a collection of atoms and molecules, not essentially different from any other chance configuration of matter. It is raw material to be manipulated and controlled to serve the human agenda like any other natural resource. Now, it's interesting, this comment on this. Even though this worldview is the dominant narrative in our culture, it is taught in every high school and every university without allowing and permitting any opposing view Still, the vast number of Americans only hold to this view loosely. Why? Because most people can't live consistently with the implications of its worldview. The biblical worldview about the human body and its worth is stunning. It is stunning like a bombshell in its contrast. The title of our series... And here we're going to put a little King James into action. Genesis 1:31, And God saw everything that he had made, and he said, Behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Male and female as complementary image bearers, unity in diversity. God screams from the heavens, It is very good. We were made to be embodied, to inhabit a body. 
and to express who we are through the beauty of our maleness and our femaleness. What is the implication? Your body has a design and purpose. Your body is not a blank slate or blank canvas. Just like tools are used to their fullest when used according to the manufacturer's design, do not use only according to the manufacturer's design. So your body is used to the fullest. You are most free. You are best known to self and others when you work according to your creator's design. Third point, your body is you. Now, that seems rather obvious, right? But our current climate forces us to take a second look. Because there is a disassociation, there is an attempt culturally to redefine ourselves without reference to the body. Nancy Piercy tells the story of Jessica Savano, a male to female transsexual, uh, a model and actor who created a Kickstarter page for a documentary entitled, I Am Not My Body. In the promotional video, Savano says, I know I'm not my body. I'm a spiritual being. Piercy concludes this about this new understanding of self-definition. In other words, the authentic self has no connection to the body, the physical body. The real person resides in the spirit, mind, will, and feelings. Okay? Now maybe if you just took that and just, if I just put that on the screen this morning without any context, you might shake your head and say, I agree with that. And it's why we need to dig a little deeper here into this. From Genesis, from Genesis, stay with me on this, from Genesis, we see that this kind of split of the true self apart from the body is not possible. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7. Again, Genesis 2 now. Genesis 1 is the big picture account of creation. Genesis 2 then zeroes in on humanity's creation. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Genesis 2, 7. What do we learn here from this scripture? Notice that God did not create Adam's soul first and then create a body for the soul to inhabit. Adam was not floating around somewhere out in space and God said, mm, I got to figure out where to put him. Now, God is spirit without a body, but for human beings to inhabit the earth, he gave them bodies. And notice, Adam was made from or of the earth. God made him from the dust of the earth. That's really significant. That's not there by accident. Adam was made from or of the earth, soul and body simultaneously woven into a single whole. Adam's name actually means of the earth. It is embodied, gendered, and earthly creatures, Adam was made, who are, it is, well, let me say it this way. 
It is embodied, gendered, and earthly creatures that are made capable of reflecting God's image. You do not exist without one. I have not seen the movie Avatar, but I guess in the movie Avatar, people can sort of, right, they can transcend one body and move into another body. That doesn't work with human beings. You are your body. You were made with a body. You don't exist without one. One theologian put it this way, embodiment is our proper state of existence. You inhabit a body and part, it is part of who you are. It does not completely define you, but neither can you exist without it. You see, this creation account affirms what we know from our experience. You cannot separate mind and body. Mind, body, and emotions are all interconnected, are they not? If you're sleepy, what happens to your capacity to think? And what happens to your emotions? I mean, it's scary for me what happens to my memory and my cognition when I'm tired or mentally fried. How about low blood sugar? Ever had that? Ever experienced the emotional depression from low blood sugar? My father experienced that before he got his right fix. He was diabetic, walking around with low blood sugar for a decade, had suicidal ideation often. And the problem was not in his mind. The problem was physical. How about stress's role, mental stress's role in cancer, right? It's well established. Mind, body cannot be separated. They are a, a, a psychophysical unit. And we are created this way. When you eat food, you do not say, my mouth is eating. You say, I am eating. When your hand is injured, you say, I am hurt. Because of our special creation, we agree with this. Philosopher Don Welton said, the body is not reducible. You can't reduce it to a material object or biophysical entity, for it belongs to the moral and spiritual universe as much as it belongs to the physical world. The implication is, you are more. You are more than your body. You are more than your body, but it is still essential to who you are. Now, number four, your relationship with your body is, well, complicated. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you have already taken a medication today, <laughs> or at least take medications regularly. Could be for physical health, our mental health, I'm going to bet it's the vast majority of you have already taken medication today. Cholesterol medicine, blood pressure medicine, pain medicine, allergy medicine, and on and on the list goes. Going back to our passage we read in Romans 8, it's clear, it's clear that the physical world and our bodies are like a dislocated shoulder. Now my shoulder, right, it's there. I know how it works. But once I dislocate it, it can easily fall out of joint again and cause tremendous pain. In a similar way, the physical world is dislocated. Life often does not fit together as we desire. And even when the shoulder slips back in and life does work, 
we feel the anxiety of uncertainty of when it will slip back out of joint. This world demonstrates a physical breakdown. There is a physical breakdown in our world. Things break down. Sleep is elusive. Cells meant to defend lose their war against disease. Hips and knees need replaced. The scripture says that the physical creation, our bodies, because of human rebellion, has been subjected to frustration or futility. Our insistence on being our own gods has thrown the world into chaos. Creation cries out because of our alienation from God. Hurricanes and droughts remind us all is not right with our Creator. Diseased genetic pools remind us everything is not right with our Creator. Now, this passage in Romans 8, it's not suggesting that someone's physical suffering or your suffering is directly related to your sin. This text is speaking of something more universal. Our world, our bodies, was set off its course by human rebellion. And that impacts us. And it makes our relationship with our bodies not so straightforward. So number one, our bodies experience physical breakdown. What else complicates our relationship with our bodies? Shame. Shame is a huge contributor to the breakdown of our bodies. It can be equally or even more debilitating is shame. Now shame can infiltrate and it can mar the very core of our identity. And it can be so bound up in the way that we view our bodies. I've talked here before openly about my own experiences with weight and, and how that to this day still impacts the way I view myself. Again, I'll mention some things here regarding women, but we should all be aware that this idea of shame related to our bodies is not only a female deal, though it does affect women in more, deep, uh, uh, more greatly. Shame affects us by the way we evaluate our appearance. What we feel when we look in the mirror. Now, of course, of course, at some level, concern for our appearance is normal and healthy. There is nothing inherently wrong with desiring a good appearance. But overemphasis on the body and physical appearance and an overly sexed culture that we live in has greatly complicated our relationship to our bodies. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Amen. There's a research outfit in England that compiles data on social issues, and they tried to find an answer on why we are so obsessed with our physical appearance. And they say, thanks to the media, we've become accustomed, this is really interesting, to extremely rigid and uniform standards of beauty. Isn't that interesting how media has affected us? From media, what we derive is not just what beauty is, but an extremely rigid and uniform. 
Secondly, standards of beauty have become harder and harder to attain, particularly for women. The current media ideal of thinness for women is achievable by less than 5% of the female population. Again, this does impact women disproportionately. All research to date on body image shows that women are much more critical of their appearance than men, much less likely to admire what they see in the mirror. Up to eight out of 10 women will be dissatisfied with their reflection and more than half may see a distorted image. And why are women so much more self-critical than men? Because women are judged on their appearance more than men. Isn't that the case, women? It's certainly the case. Women are judged more, and standards of female beauty are considerably higher and more inflexible. Women are continually bombarded with images of the ideal face and figure, what one author called the official body. Shame. Shame impacts our relationship. Shame complicates our relationship with our body. Now, shame can also come from our own sin. Particularly sexual sin can distort the way that we view our bodies. Shame can come from sins that have been done to us by others. The shame that accompanies sexual abuse, for example, is a well-documented and devastating contributor to body shame. Thirdly, what complicates our relationship with our bodies is not just physical breakdown, it's not just shame, but it is when we idolize our bodies. A third contributor to a complicated relationship, and again, at first hearing, this sounds counterintuitive, but it is the idolizing of our body. Yes, the Bible elevates. Hear me on this, because this is where it's important to discern. I'm nuancing here. I'm, 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 I'm cutting here thin layers. So, so listen, please. The Bible elevates greatly the value of you and your whole person, including the intrinsic worth of your body. However, you were never intended to worship your body or derive your identity from it. You see, when we even as Christians seek the illusion of the perfect body, we are actually moving into a place of idolatry and self-worship. And unlike our loving and forgiving God, the idol of the perfect body is a cruel and unforgiving taskmaster, always demanding more and more. Friends, this is what's so cool about the Bible. And one of the reasons I believe it, the Bible uniquely keeps us from both damaging extremes, right? It keeps us on one hand from despising our bodies and on the other hand from idolizing them. It puts, for example, human beauty in perspective. Proverbs 31:30, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Or how about this favorite, Proverbs eleven twenty two, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. The Bible puts beauty in perspective in relation to character. Physical illness, shame, 
and idolizing our bodies all make our relationship with our bodies not so straightforward, not so clear-cut, complicates things. So it really leads to our final point this morning. Is there hope for our bodies and hope for us? Friends, here's a really important thing for us to grab a hold of. When we are unhappy with our bodies, and we all are, right? right we're not, I'm not, we're, nobody's here is taking any morally superior ground or stand. We all are unhappy with our bodies. When we are unhappy with our bodies, the answer is not to try to escape or exchange them. The answer is and I'm not trying to be trite here, is to remember that the biblical view of life and reality says this to you and to me and to our culture, your body is not yet finished. Your body is not yet finished. You see, finding self-salvation, and like an earthly salvation, or finding self-salvation and redemption of our bodies by exchanging or escaping them. This is the hope that is held out by those seeking to change or transition from their God-given gender. Now, Nick is going to cover this more fully in a few weeks. But suffice to say it now that outside of the rare cases when there is genuine physiological gender ambiguity, and that does happen, it is rare, Outside of that, the scriptures urge us to receive, to value, and to embrace how God made us, including our given gender. Now, undoubtedly, friends, undoubtedly, the reasons people head down this path, the reasons people head down this path are as unique as there are the numbers of people that pursue it. No one story is alike. And for those in that pathway trying to escape or exchange their God-given gender, they need from us our listening ear. They need from us our listening ear. They need from us our compassion. And they also need from us, the church, the truth that brings freedom. Part of that news is we bring is that yes, Though our bodies are broken, your body is not yet finished. Paul said in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. As glorious and fallen as our bodies are today, they are lowly compared to the redeemed body that we will receive in the age to come. It will be a body, get this, it'll be a body that will erase, eradicate our previous suffering, both mentally and physically, as if it never happened. when he makes all things new. You know, when I think about 
shame, for example. And I think about how Paul wrote in Romans 7, how sin is deeply layered inside of us, right? It's just deeply layered inside of us. And at the end of that chapter, Paul says, who can free me from this? Only Jesus Christ. Friends, some of these things are woven very deeply into us. And we will fight it and we will resist it and it will play a role in our lives until the day that we die. But when he comes back and gives us a new body and a new mind, friends, it will be like that suffering never occurred. It will be like that sexual abuse never occurred. It will be like that body shaming never occurred. It will be fully erased and eradicated, a new body and a new mind. And we get a faint picture of what that, the power of that body when we look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And speaking of Jesus and his body, let me close by just saying this, that Jesus, Jesus gave his perfectly obedient body and his perfectly obedient mind for our sinned, marred, shame-filled, broken, and compromised, and disobedient bodies. 1 Peter 2, 24, he bore our sins on his body. Colossians 1, 20, it was through his body on the cross he reconciled us to the Father. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Jesus, with an innocent, perfect body, took on our sin and shame. It, you could argue this was the ultimate dysphoria. I mean, how ill-fitting and what unease Jesus must have felt in his body as he absorbed human sinfulness into his own mind, consciousness, and being. It is Jesus who forgives. It is Jesus who receives and accepts you and your body as you are. He accepts you. He receives you. He welcomes you with your broken mind. He welcomes you with your broken body as you are. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Today, if you don't know Jesus in a real and personal and intimate way, today you can receive his love and you can receive his acceptance and you can receive his gift of life by simply asking him to come in, to be your leader, to be your forgiver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ground you've allowed us to cover today. We thank you for the songs that we sang and being able to take the bread and the, and the wine together to remember your body broken for us, your perfect, innocent body exchanged for our sinful, compromised bodies so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to the Father. And all we can do like David, when we reflect on how wonderful you are, 
when we see how you have made us with meticulous care, and even when we messed up the world through our own disobedience, you set forth a salvation plan to redeem our bodies and to redeem this world. Lord, I can't wait to live in a new body and to live in a new world in the age to come when the physical creation and our bodies and our community will be restored to what they were meant to be and what they were designed to be in the beginning. What a great and wonderful and marvelous God you are. And we worship and praise you and remember you this morning. And we ask you, Father, to send us out of here this morning rejoicing in who you've made us to be and rejoicing that there is forgiveness. And that, Father, we may find that place. We may find that place where we accept who we are and we accept the bodies that you've gave us and we accept your sovereignty and love and kindness, even in their complexities. May we give thanks to you for the bodies you've given us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.